Well, we continue in our evening service our series on the book of Galatians, and so please turn there in your Bibles, and we come to the second chapter, the first ten verses. Now, let me remind you as you're turning there that Galatians is, if not the earliest, certainly one of the earliest of Paul's epistles. In my opinion, it is the earliest. Some think that 1 Thessalonians was the earliest, but the Apostle Paul understood his gospel, as we saw last time, right from the start, when the Lord Jesus Christ revealed himself to him on the Damascus Road. All of his theology was there, at least in incipient form, and uh, he established, by God's grace, these, was used of the Lord to establish these churches in South Galatia. Not long after the Apostle Paul was used to establish the churches in South Galatia, false teachers infiltrated the church. And those false teachers taught a gospel that was no gospel, but a false gospel. Now, in the section that we saw last time, uh, chapter 1, verses 11 and so, and especially around verses 18 and following, we found there was an autobiographical section. Now, that autobiography continues in these 10 verses. This autobiography, sometimes when you read, you might want to just say, I'm going to skip over it. I don't see its significance. Frankly, it's difficult to explain. It's difficult to preach. But this autobiography is here for a reason. It's extremely important for setting up what the Apostle Paul is going to do in the remainder of the book and in making certain points, as I hope to demonstrate uh, by the grace of God this evening. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word, Galatians 2, the first 10 verses. This is the word of God. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you." From those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference. To me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me, for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, and that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked to remember, asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, when I was a boy, a very small boy, I don't know, four or five years old, I suppose, my brother, who was much older than I, five years older, uh, had this history book that, um, that I loved to look at. I was always fascinated with history, and I just stared the pages off this book, looking at the pictures, reading what I could. 
And as a boy looking at this, I, I have a very uh, vivid memory of a disgruntled King John under duress with uh, the lords and gentry around him, granting, forcing him to grant liberty to the English people at Runnymede in 1215. Of course, what I was seeing as a boy was this picture of King John as he signed the Magna Carta, which of course is the charter of English liberty. Well, the book of Galatians is that in the Bible, it is the Magna Carta of our Christian liberty. And I have have been humbled to understand more and more of its implications as time has gone by and have constantly run my eyes over this Magna Carta of the Christian's Liberty, the book of Galatians, through the years. The very first book that I taught as a young man to others was the book of Galatians. I've always loved it. I love it dearly, and I hope that you will too, because in this book, we are taught what it means that we are free in Christ. Now, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, and Paul is scathing in his approach to those who attempt to destroy the liberty of Christians. I want us to see four things tonight. The first is this. I want you to see the Apostle Paul laboring for unity in the gospel. Paul laboring for unity in the gospel. Now, in that prior autobiography, Paul has shown that his first contact with the apostles was not the source of his gospel. The next context... Con, the, this, this context in which we find the next visit of Paul, about which we have read just a few moments ago, was 14 years later. He came to Jerusalem a second time 14 years later, and this was in response to a revelation. Now, Paul's consistent point in both of these autobiographical sections is this. My gospel did not come from any human origin, but was received directly from the risen Christ and therefore, it needs no additional authentication. Now, it seems clear that in this chapter, this was the famine visit of Acts chapter 11, verse 30, in which Paul has gone up by revelation. But again, whatever visit this may have been, his entire purpose in relating this was what we saw in chapter 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Paul's gospel was not according to man, but was received by revelation from the risen Christ. And so the Apostle Paul is making two interrelated points. The first point is the gospel of God's grace is just that. It is grace and it is not based on human effort or human works of any kind. This is a theme that grows as we continue to see Galatians progress. Human effort contributes nothing to the justification of a sinner, nothing to our acceptance before God. And then the second interrelated point is this, his entire purpose in all of this autobiography is to say that my gospel is not according to man and that the Gentile mission was completely independent of Jewish Christian uh, influence in the sense that Paul's gospel needed no supplementation from the apostles who were in Jerusalem. And this means that both Jew and Gentile are saved in the same way. Both Jew and Gentile are justified, accepted with God only through the grace of God in Christ. Now, given the fact that we have sinful, confused natures and that we seek salvation apart from Christ, Paul's emphasis is all important. It is the essential. 
G.C. Burkauer makes the statement about the Judaizers, since they had abstracted law from gospel, they could not but regard religion in terms of merit. Now that's a very profound observation. At any point that we abstract, abstract the law from the gospel, we will conceive of religion in terms of merit. But the Lord is showing us that sinners are saved by grace alone, however the attempt to blend grace and works may appear at various places and various times in the history of the church. So what did Paul do on this trip as he tells us these important truths? Well, it, he tells us that he took along Barnabas and he took along Titus. Now this is no unimportant tale. He's not giving a tra travelogue with, no, with no, uh, no purpose. It's a very important detail because, you see, Titus was a Greek and Titus was uncircumcised. Titus' Christian freedom, however, was recognized, Paul says, by all. And then when he was there with the other apostles, he set before them the gospel I preached among the Gentiles, he says. And when he speaks that way, he's using a present tense. The gospel that I am at present preaching, the gospel I am preaching right now is the gospel that I set before the apostles in Jerusalem. So, why did he do that? Why did he set before the apostles uh, this, uh, this gospel that he was preaching? Well, it was not for any lack of confidence in the gospel. Uh, the end of verse 2, he says, in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. That could be misleading if you don't understand it correctly. This does not mean that Paul doubted his message. He was certain of his message. Just turn back to chapter 1 for a moment, and you can get the flavor of Paul's certainty of his message. Just as we begin in verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In verses 8 and 9, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let it be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Or in verse 10, am I, not, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Or again in verse 11, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. There is superabundant evidence that the Apostle Paul is completely convinced of his gospel. He has no doubt of his gospel. He understands this gospel of sovereign free grace. And so what does he mean when he says, in order, in verse 2, in order that I, uh, to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain? Well, Paul means this. Paul means that his labor for the gospel might well be in vain if the apostles did not express unity with him on the essential matter of how a person is accepted by God. He's not doubting his gospel. His converts were obviously being told that in Jerusalem, the leadership differed with Paul on this matter. And all of Paul's labor might well be in vain if this falsity were not exploded. And so, one concession would have confirmed the insistence of the false teachers that to become a Christian, one must first become a Jew. If even a hint of approbation were given by the apostles in Jerusalem of the teaching of the false Judaizers in Galatia, 
Paul's labor for the spread of the gospel would have been endangered. And so Paul is laboring very hard for the gospel and for the unity of the church on the basis of the gospel. Now I wonder, are you so passionate for the church? Are you so passionate for the gospel? Are you so passionate for the purity and peace of the church? Do you find that you're lackadaisical about these things? Or do you care about truth? Are you consumed with a passion for the gospel? And do you care about the gospel and its preservation? And do you care about the church in its purity and its peace? Let me ask you another question. Can't you see, do you think, that God was watching over you in these meetings between Paul and the apostles in Jerusalem? Just what if the apostle had gone there and he had met with the other apostles and they had differed? They had not agreed. Just what if they had agreed in any measure with the Judaizers rather than with Paul? What would the history of the church have been like? What would you be hearing now from a pulpit such as this? Would you be hearing free grace? Or would you be hearing grace mingled with works, which means works altogether? No, no, the Lord is watching over you, his people because he is guarding through Paul and the other apostles the truth of the gospel and its grace so that it may be freely and truly preached. So what was the consensus? Well, that takes us to our second point. There's Paul in Jerusalem. He meets with the apostles. The Judaizers say that the apostles there agree with them. But what was the consensus? This is the second point. The consensus is this. There are no conditions for acceptance with God. No conditions performed by man. No conditions whatsoever. You see in verse 3 he says, But even Titus who was with me was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Titus was a Gentile. If the apostles in Jerusalem did not require him to be circumcised, then it must not be necessary to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. Titus was proof that Paul and the Jerusalem leadership were all on the same page regarding the gospel of sovereign grace. Not even in Jerusalem was this Gentile required to be circumcised. No one said, Jesus died for you, but to be fully accepted by God and to be fully accepted by us, you also have to perform some work of the law and you have to be circumcised. No one said, Jesus plus. No one. The conclusion to be drawn, the conclusion to be drawn is that nothing need be added to the gospel of free grace. No supplement is needed for a sinner to be accepted by God or for the full membership in the church. How can Paul say this? How could the apostles say this? They could say this because they knew that Jesus paid it all. He paid the entire debt on the cross. And in his resurrection from the dead, he declares his people justified. And so they were confirmed in this gospel. And uh, that confirmation is found in what we next read in verses 4 and 5. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us to, into slavery, to put to, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel 
might be preserved for you. Troublemakers there in the churches of Galatia. Those troublemakers, by the way, that arose very, very quickly. You see, the gospel can be preached and a people can profess faith in that gospel and yet false teaching can come overnight and can cause people to deviate from the gospel of grace. What were these false teachers teaching? Well, hold your finger here and turn to the book of Acts. You will recall in Acts chapter 15 that we have that first general assembly of the church. And even though, in my view, what happens in Acts 15 comes after Paul writes Galatians, nonetheless, the issue is the same. We begin at chapter 15, verse 1 of the book of Acts. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, and here's what they're teaching, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, now these would be Judaizers, these would be Pharisaical Jews who are now a part of the church, they rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order and to order them to keep the law of Moses. That's what they were teaching in Galatia. That if you're going to be saved, you must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be accepted by God. Turn back to Galatians and let's turn to chapter 6. We find another hint of what was going on. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, Paul writes, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, let me pause. What does that mean? Evidently, it means this, uh, that in this period in which the Apostle Paul wrote, Uh, Jews were widely recognized in the Roman Empire and given freedom to express their their religion. Uh, Some of these folk evidently are concerned that if the church loses its Jewishness, that they would be persecuted for the gospel of free grace because they would no longer be viewed as Jewish. And so they want to get rid of any offense of the cross of Christ alone and the grace of God alone. And Paul goes on to say in verse 13, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And so they wanted others to be bound to the law of Moses as they were bound, and at issue was chapter 2, verse 5, the truth of the gospel. Paul says, look, you may not think this is any big deal, but you don't get it. If we allow this to creep in, If this one thing creeps in, then the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace will be ruined for the church. It will no longer be the gospel, but it will be a false gospel that will be preached in the church of Jesus Christ. 
And so Paul understood that the Judaizers promoted a works righteousness worldview entailing a denial of the freedom that has been purchased for Christians by Jesus. And so Paul speaks of the surreptitious nature of his opponents. You see that there in verses 4 and 5. He describes them as, and this is my translation, infiltrators, false brothers who slipped in to ambush our liberty that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might enslave us. Infiltrators. Paul probably indicates that there is a motive of stealth here. They were false brothers, pseudodelphus, false brothers. The Revised English Bible translates it sham Christians. Their perversion of the gospel of grace, their desire to trap others in their works righteousness disqualifies them to be regarded as true brothers in Christ. Their aim? To ambush our liberty that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might enslave us. No matter how the Judaizers viewed themselves, Paul sees clearly that adherence to their viewpoint would lead to a sacrifice of the gospel of freedom and would lead to enslavement of believers in Jesus. Now in Greek, this sentence, verse 4, you see here, um, yet because of false brothers, read it like this, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, and then you can see Paul just doing this. He doesn't even finish the sentence in Greek. You see the, the dash in your ESV? He doesn't even finish the sentence. He's so emotionally distraught by what these people are trying to do to Christians. He writes with such emotion that he doesn't even finish the line. Now, would these people have seen themselves this way? Oh, I doubt it. I doubt it. They would have said, oh, no, we're, we're saving Christianity for culture. Uh, we're saving Christianity for the future. Um, we are uh, keeping the Christian faith from being persecuted so that it can spread. Deniers of grace rarely see themselves or their systems for what they really are and rarely understand the, their, the, their motives, the motives of their own hearts. Rarely. Take Roman Catholicism, for example. Now, I'm not questioning that there are believing Roman Catholics who trust in Christ alone for salvation. I'm talking about the system. The system of Roman Catholicism is works righteousness through and through. Through and through. But if you talk to any Roman Catholic theologian, he'll say, what are you talking about? I believe in grace. That's the point here. I doubt seriously the Judaizers would have said, oh, we don't believe in grace. Of course we believe in grace. But when you begin to analyze the system, just as you do with Rome, you see that the system is a denial of the grace of God. Now the third point. The third point is, there is no other gospel. Paul saw all of this clearly. False brothers sneaking in to spy out our liberty in Christ, to enslave us. Paul knows the moral law has a place in the life of the Christian, yes. But it, it has no place for justification. The moral law has a place in the life of the Christian, but no law and no ceremony, no obedience can make us right or acceptable with God. Nor can these things be the basis of our acceptance with one another. And so this is no minor matter. Do you see? To force Titus to be circumcised would necessitate keeping the whole law for justification. Turn to chapter 5. 
This is what Paul is going to be driving toward. Verse 3, Galatians 5, 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. It's not just a matter of accepting this one thing. If you take this one thing and compromise grace, then you're obligated to the whole legal system in order for your justification rather than the grace of the gospel. So he understood that if Titus had been forced to be circumcised, the whole gospel would have been lost. And he says in verse 5, We did not give into them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Look, Paul was the most pliable of men when principle was not at issue. But when the truth of the gospel was at stake, Paul was a rock. Law-keeping for justification means enslavement. It is slavery to live under the burden of thinking that you must produce in order to be right with God. That denies that Jesus produced for us and in our place. It is slavery to think that you must fit a certain standard of cultural respectability in order to be accepted by God or to have a place among the people of God. And so, had Paul given ground, the damage done to the proclamation of the free grace of God might have been irrevocable. The Galatians are in danger of accommodating a false gospel that will shackle them in the bonds of law-keeping as a means of righteousness. There was more to the scheme of attempting to circumcise Titus than would have met the eye. And Paul had the wisdom and the vision and the foresight to see where this small step If you're listening on tape, I'm doing quotation marks where this small step would have led. And so the way that Paul speaks of the leadership in verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, uh, and in verse 9, pillars, uh, he's talking about the apostles there. This is not disrespectful, the brothers. He's showing that it does not matter how esteemed one may be as far as the truth of the gospel is concerned. That's what he means by saying God does not show favoritism. There's only one gospel, and our unity is in that one gospel. Now, verses 6 through 10 is very complicated. Uh, These are very complicated. They have many complexities, but basically the issues are these. So let me summarize these verses for you. The first thing I think to note in verses 6 through 10 is that the apostles added nothing to my message. They agreed with Paul. Grace alone, faith alone, the work of Christ alone. The second thing to take from those verses is that they saw Paul was entrusted with bringing the gospel to the Gentiles while Peter was primarily entrusted with taking the gospel to the Jews. The substantive point is they preached in different spheres but they preached the same gospel, not a different one. Third, the Jerusalem leaders extended to Paul the right hand of fellowship. Hey, James, Peter, John, do you think that we should welcome Gentiles without making them Jews first? They agreed with Paul. It's all of grace, and they shook hands on it. Fellowship with Christ is the one sole and sufficient foundation of our fellowship with one another. Grace is the issue here. 
What the false teachers were attempting was no small matter, but was a subversion of the very gospel by which sinners are saved. The Jerusalem leaders and Paul were in agreement. They shook hands on it. And the pillars, verse 9, the pillars probably was a term applied to the Jerusalem leaders by the false teachers who wrongly claimed their support. But Paul could say, hey, the pillars, they agree with me. Fourth point, because of this gospel, we are free to show mercy. Or you could say we are free to live Christianly. They are one in the gospel, the apostles and Paul, and they were keen to ask only one thing of Paul. Verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, this very thing I was eager to do. Mercy to the poor. The poor that we should remember, actually in the Greek text, poor is in the emphatic position. And it shows something of the priorities of the early church. If God accepts me, then I also accept others. If God accepts me and he loves me, then I also love others. And so the gospel must be lived out. And Paul's epistles are laced with teaching about the collections that he took for the poor Christians in the Jerusalem church. He's not talking about general philanthropy here. He's talking about the collections that he would take for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. The point is this. Paul was not asked in any way whatsoever to modify his gospel. As for the one request that the poor be remembered, this was no modification of his gospel, and Paul was already eager to do this very thing. In fact, the very reason for the famine visit of Acts 11.30 was concern for the poor. Paul was already engaged in that work for the church. The collection for the believers in poor, in the, in, in poor Jerusalem, in the church there, became a hallmark of Paul's ministry. And if you read Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9, you can actually trace Paul's concern for the poor Christians in the Jerusalem church. Now, the circumstances in which Paul wrote were peculiar to the first century and peculiar to his own setting. We work through this Pauline autobiography to understand these issues, but though the circumstances were peculiar to that day and to his time, the issue, the issue of grace and works, or grace plus works, the issue comes up time and time and time again in church history and daily in the hearts of Christians. If you look upon the bleeding Son of God who hung upon a cross and trust your soul to Him, you are accepted with God without works of any kind on your part. And the whole history of the church is, from one perspective, illustrative of how we have remembered or forgotten, been clear or have been obscure on this essential point. So if you are here tonight, if you are a harlot or if you are a moralist, you, both of you, can be saved because of what Jesus did on the cross 
and you can be saved, both of you, in the same way and only in the same way. And that is through the work of Jesus Christ. There is only one way of acceptance with God. Believe in Jesus Christ. Oh, that hymn we we quoted this morning. Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost thou hast paid. Originally it was to the utmost farthing paid. Whate'er thy people owed, how then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? This is what Paul means in Romans 8.1 when he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. One of the older translations reads, There is therefore now no damnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's why I'm so keen on preaching to you this core of the gospel, the imputed righteousness of Christ, this perfect record of Christ received by faith alone, because the whole system of vicarious atonement and substitution is involved here, is either upheld or denied on what you think on that point. If salvation is in any measure by human works, the gospel is lost. And so God justifies, Paul tells us in Romans, God justifies the ungodly. You heard it right. Paul did not say, I justify, God justifies the godly. He doesn't say, God justifies you when you obey the law. God justifies you when you fulfill conditions. God justifies you when you do it right. God, hear me, God justifies the ungodly. That's me. And that's good news. And that's why Paul can't compromise this gospel of sovereign free grace. The perfect righteousness of Christ is received by faith alone. Faith is not a work. Faith is a grace. Believing then, my friend, believing is not doing anything for acceptance with God. Believing is leaving off your doing. Believing is reliance upon Christ who has done it all. The false teachers wanted to spell faith D-O, do. But Paul says the Christian faith is spelled D-O. N-E, done. Do you know the hymn? Nothing, either great or small, nothing, sin or no. Jesus did it, did it all, long, long ago. That's the gospel that Paul is defending in the book of Galatians. And my friend, it is the ground of our faith. Christ did it all. May God bless the preaching of his word.